Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Thank you to Adrian Van Vector for hosting for me for the last week. And evidently, I'm out of practice because I'm pressing all the wrong buttons. But here we are, A Reason for Hope. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. A Reason for Hope is a hour-long live broadcast which is dedicated to your questions on the Bible. That's right. You can send in your questions on the Bible through our various online platforms. And we have some wonderful guests here today that will delve into the Word to find answers to those. And so we welcome you to send those questions in. In a moment, I'll be sharing with you all those different platforms and all the ways that you can join us. But as I said, my name is Dave Robson. I will be your host today. With us is Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. Doing well. Thank you for making yourself available to answer questions from you know from day to day here on the Reason for Hope. Especially you, Sean. You're here. Me and you are here most days huh? when I'm not yep. sick. And, but, uh, and when I am. <laughs> yes, and sometimes when we are. It's been a very bad allergy season for us all, but uh, yes, it has. Well, once again, as I mentioned, A Reason of Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you here Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's here in Tucson, Arizona, where we're broadcasting <coughs> from. But through the internet, you can join us all around the world, and we have people that do that, which uh, we're always very excited about for you guys to join us. A great place to go is our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Reason for Hope is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So that's a great home base for you. While you're there, check out our website. We have a, an events page right there, the, that tab to the right you will see. And you can check out all kinds of different groups and events that we have going on. So if you're in the Tucson area, don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you. And of course, you're welcome to come here to our services as well. We have a Wednesday evening service at 6.30 and Sunday 8 and 9.30 and 11 a.m. as well. So if you're looking for a home church, then you're more than welcome to come along and visit us here. We're near Princeton I-10 on the west side of the freeway. But uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com, that's our website. If you follow the Watch Live tab right there, that will take you to our live page. And when we're off air, you'll see a countdown to our next show. Not only Reason for Hope, but also our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. But when we're online and when we're live, um, you'll see the video there. You'll be able to sign in with a username of your choice and be part of the chat there. And as we go along, I'll be monitoring those and chatting with you and receiving your questions. So that's a great home base for you. ccftucson.online.church is the direct link or follow the link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. Of course, we're on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash ccftucson. And don't forget to like and to share. We'd love to reach not only you, but your friends as well. So if you've been blessed, please do share us around, but just send your questions in on the chat function there. I'll be monitoring those as well. I'll be a very busy boy tonight. Uh, we have an app as well for your mobile device. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson once again. You'll see our logo there, the Calvary Chapel White Dove logo on a red background. That's our app. You can download that on your iPhone or your Android or your iPad or all those mobile devices. But also on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel on there as well. So if you have a TV that's enabled with Roku or a, a stick or an um, Apple TV device or any of those things, look for our channel. That's another way that you can watch us on your big screen. Uh, we're on YouTube, of course, but A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel, A Reason for Hope. Again, look for that white Calvary Chapel Dove logo or go to youtube.com slash at reason for hope 546. And that's a great place to see the archive as well. There's archive of um, our shows. If you go to that live tab, thank you, Peter, for mentioning that the other week. Go to the live tab and that has an archive. Anytime we've gone live, you'll see the archive video there. So. You can look back at shows you've missed or if we covered questions that you want to go back and listen to again. 
because it blew your mind and you want to study it more <laughs> for whatever reason, um, that's a great place to go. And our services as well, you can check out um, our services and the teaching ministry of uh, Pastor Scott Richards, our senior pastor here as well. So that's a great resource for you on YouTube. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter as well, Scott R4H on Twitter. He posts highlights from the show and uh, kind of commentary on world events. There's so much going on in the world. He kind of uh, commentates on that from a biblical and scriptural uh, prophetic perspective. Um, so if you're on Twitter, follow along with Scott. He's with us usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday here on the show, and he is the founder of um, A Reason for Hope as well. And last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you listen to us on the radio, you'll want to use that method. As you are listening to our, our last show pre-recorded, um, sure you're not listening to us live per se, um, but use that email address and we'll get you a question on the next show and consider joining us uh, when you're not on your drive time or when you're able to on one of our live platforms and you can interact with us through those other platforms as well. Well, I think I covered everything. Peter, would you like to pray for us before we go any further? We love to pray and ask the Lord to lead and guide as we're handling his word, which is a very serious thing, not to scare you or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's pray. Uh, Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you and the work that you do in our lives and just your sovereignty within the world. We do want to pray for this time that we have to study your word, that it would be fruitful, beneficial, that those listening would be um, exhorted by it, they would be encouraged in their relationship with you, and strengthened to better follow you and to defend you to others. Uh, I pray for me, Dave, and Sean, that we would be able to speak in a way that honors and glorifies you. Mm. In your name, amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, Peter, do you have something to share with us? Often when you're here, we kind of pick your brain. Yeah, but you gotta you gotta say the name. Do I? <laughs> okay, fine. Today you are talking about apparently Jean-Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> Rousseau. <laughs> that is not how you pronounce. Oh that. well, I try my best. Okay, go it's, ahead. Uh, Jean. Jean. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Come on, man. Your country's only Jean. a couple of paces away from France. You yes. should know that. I'm English, so yeah. I should be able to speak French. <laughs> That makes sense. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is a very, very important figure in Western civilization. So what we've been doing is we've been loosely going through this really excellent book written by Carl Truman named The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in it, he tries to show exactly why our culture thinks the way it does so that we could better interact with the culture, right? So if you don't understand the underlying principles or the underlying philosophies of your culture, it's going to really deter your ability to interact fruitfully with them. And so that's the intent of this book. It's to help people understand the big thinkers that have led to the modern way of processing reality, what he called the social imagination. And he began with a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So again, these thinkers that I'm going over, I'm mentioning them specifically because we disagree with them, right? It's, it's mm. that we do not agree with them. They are not uh, they are not useful to us. In fact, they are the reason why our culture has had this really steady and now sharp decline away from Judeo-Christian values and into secular atheism. Rousseau is a very interesting guy, and he's incredibly dangerous for numerous reasons. The first one is he is a very eloquent writer. Uh, when you read most philosophers, I don't know how many of you have tried to tackle an actual philosophic work, they're not very accessible. Uh, you you might start reading one and, and say, man, I just don't know what the heck this guy is talking about. Some of you may have tried to tackle Nietzsche after I talked about him a couple weeks ago and realized, man, this just ain't for me. 
philosophers are notoriously difficult to read and digest their thoughts. So usually what happens, and this is what uh, Truman, Carl Truman points out in his book, is that you have a philosopher who has a lot of innovative ideas, but then he dies without making really any impact on his society or culture. But what happens is during the course of his life, different intellectuals at different levels within the society glom onto their ideas and they take them in. So it's actually like a very small percentage of people know about these people and understand their thoughts. But those people then disseminate their ideas in a more digestible format. So it's very watered down. It's not as complicated. And sometimes it's even a perversion of what was originally said. However, it is still more accessible. And that's how these ideas get put into the culture. So Rousseau was interesting in the fact that while he was a philosopher, he was accessible to the common person. So there wasn't this long period where he has these ideas, he dies, and then 100 years later, his ideas start going into the culture. It's He has his ideas and they immediately go into the culture. Uh, like a poison, actually. And his life, he, he lived from 1712 to 1778. Just a little bit after he died, a decade after he died, France went into a revolution because of this guy's ideas. So you could see how quickly these things got just immediately inseminated within the culture and absolutely distorted and torqued the culture in a massive way. His ideas did not just affect French culture, though. It affected the entire European world. And so we're going to go over some of his key ideas and we're going to talk about why they affected the world. The next reason that he is such a dangerous thinker, though, is that he wrote about basically everything. So the guy wrote about a ton of stuff. He wrote a, a lot of books and these books touched essentially every facet of human society. So when you have a thinker that's accessible, but his ideas are actually not very good, but people think they're good because of his eloquence, and he writes about the total state of human nature, you have a guy who can completely from the bottom up affect human society. And that is exactly what he did. As we go through these other thinkers, guys like Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, even Darwin, you're going to see that this guy touched all of them, right? This mm -hmm. guy actually affected all these thinkers in really massive ways. So what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to try to get through all of his, all these quotes today, but if we can't, you're going to keep me on time. Uh, we'll, we'll take oh, we him will. another. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll make me shut up. Right. Uh, we'll take him another time. Now, one of the big quotes that most people actually know of Rousseau is his comments about what's called the noble savage. So Rousseau had a very interesting idea about what corrupts mankind. So this is the first quote we're going to go over. It's from his book, Emile. Uh, Emile was essentially, this is kind of weird to put it this way, it was essentially a baby book. So if those of really? those, yeah, those you guys who are parents and you want a 400-year, I mean, a 300-year baby book, you could read Emile. <laughs> and it's terrible, right? It's absolutely terrible. But in Emile, he just, it's a baby book. It's literally just looking at what does it mean to raise a child from infancy to adulthood. And in it, he gives a little bit of a widespread ideal of not only his philosophy on human nature, but also his philosophy on education and child rearing. And that's why these, again, have had a really negative effect on society. So this is a quote from Emile. Let us lay it down as an incontrovertible rule that the first impulses of nature are always right. There is no original sin in the human heart and how and why of the entrance of every vice can be traced. The only natural passion is self-love or selfishness taken in a wider sense. This selfishness is good in itself and in relation to ourselves, 
And as the child has no necessary relations to other people, he is naturally indifferent to them. His self-love only becomes good or bad by the use made of it and the relations established by its means. you have any thoughts about that quote before I dive into it? Uh, All right. for time. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you could probably, as I'm reading it, you could probably hear a lot of ringing bells of like, that sounds a lot like Richard Dawkins. And he wrote an entire book called The Selfish Gene that is predominated on this principle. You may even think of guys like David Hume. You may think of Karl Marx, right? There are various other people within our society that really like this idea. In fact, the entire transgender movement is built around this idea. So his idea is that you are naturally born inherently good, that there's a natural state of man. There is no such thing as original sin. He gives lip service to God in his books, but he is an atheist. He is a functional atheist. Mm. In this sense, what he's saying is that when you're born, you have natural predispositions that are always right. And society pollutes you away from them. So your parents are at fault. Like anything that's wrong with you, it's your parents' fault or your society's fault. But it's not your fault. Mm. It's all these other people's fault. And he even says that our natural impulse is for self-preservation. And he says, this is a good thing. It's like, you need to be selfish because if you're selfish, then you're going to do the right thing. Mm. But it's actually society, think about, it's a little antithetical to Christian doctrine, isn't it? Yeah. Christian doctrine says that you're not supposed to think about yourself. You're supposed to think about others. Rousseau is saying, no, no, no. Actually, your natural impulse is correct. The two-year-old that's saying mine all the time, he's right. Mm. You who are trying to share, you're wrong. Right? Mm. You're, you're trying to preserve other people. You're in the wrong. There's a famous story from his life where one of his best friends has like a stroke and he just ditches, right? He just leaves him on the road to die alone. Other people like help him out. He ends up living. He comes back later. He's like, oh, I'm glad you're okay. You know, mm. But like this idea of Rousseau that your selfish impulse is always correct is something he actually lived by. Uh, he was also a terrible father. He had a bunch of illegitimate kids. Then some of them he, he actually locked in asylums. So not a great guy. Wow. Any, any thoughts on that? Well, just I don't know how more than one person can live with that kind of philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's okay for us all to be selfish, how does that work with more than one person? So his idea, and this is really interesting, we'll get more into it in a sec, but his idea is that if you act in your self-interest and I act in my self-interest, we're both taking care of ourselves and so everything's okay. But if you act for me, then you're ignoring what's good for you mm. and therefore your life starts to deteriorate and what needs to supplement that vacuum? Government. And government is also a big source mm. of ills in his ideology. So uh, he actually thinks it's a moral wrong to look after the good of another. Ayn Rand thought this way as well. So th there are a lot of modern atheists who completely believe Rousseau and what he's saying. Uh, you're about to say something, John. Oh, it's it's just a side comment, but it's amusing how even in modern culture, when the name Emile's brought up, it's actually in a uh, popular video game franchise. Like, you wouldn't know it if I even mentioned the name. But uh, what's ironic is people think that it's the protagonist, but in reality, when you actually follow the story through to its natural end, he destroys the world. Right. Yeah. And people still think that's the good <laughs> thing. So. They still can't see that he's a little bit malevolent. Um, all right. Next quote. God makes all things good. Man meddles with them and they become evil. He forces one soil to yield the products of another, one tree to bear another's fruit. So this is why I'm saying that he gives lip service to God. But he, again, when you read his writings, it's very clear he's a functional atheist. Now, the reason why he says this is because what he's getting at is Rousseau did not like society. He thought that the natural state of man, which, by the way, we're going to get into a quote from him later, 
He was an evolutionist. Now, that was shocking to me when I read this in his books. Mm. He's an evolutionist about 100 years before Darwin. Now, when I was in school, mm. I learned that Darwin created the theory of evolution. Right. But this dude believes it, and he believes it pretty fervently, and he talks about it. So we're going to talk about that when we get to this particular quote. But the point of this quote is that man would be better off in his natural state. That is society and modern convenience and technology. That's what's made us soft. That's what's made us weak. We need to get away from all that and go back to the nobility of the ancient world. Now, where does that permeate our culture today? In modern society, there is this idea that white men, specifically European men, are the cause of all the issues within the world. That the natives, right, not just the Native Americans, but the native tribalistic peoples that existed in Africa, that existed in India, that existed in the, uh, the Galapagos Islands and Hawaii and uh, America and the Caribbeans, that these people were totally pure. It was Pocahontas and, you know, Fern Gully and Avatar. And th these movies are totally representative of what it was like to be in these cultures. And then the evil white colonizers came in and ruined everything. Mm. Made right? them stop sacrificing their children and yeah. cannibalizing and enslaving each other. It's just a total mess. Yeah. Sean's obviously being facetious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Hope yeah. So. yeah. But yeah, but it makes sense from his philosophy that he's looking at and saying, well, if society is the root of our ills, then that means that the least socialized people groups would be the best. Mm. And so the term the noble savage comes from Rousseau. So if you hear intellectuals talking and they say, yeah, you know, like everything was really good before the white man showed up or white man brought the original sin to this continent. Uh, these ideas, even uh, a couple modern movies that illustrate these ideas. I mentioned Avatar. Avatar is completely sold over to the Rousseauian idea mm. of ethics and uh, Black Panther 2. I just watched Black Panther 2. It was a decent movie, but its philosophy is really seeped in Rousseau that you have these uh, representatives of native culture, which would be the Atlanteans, and they're fighting against the colonizers. That's the idea, that the colonizers are the evil ones and we need to overthrow them. And that's why you have Wakanda and Atlantis are these perfect utopian societies mm. because they're immune to the colonizers. But obviously the world's screwed up because of the evil white man, right? So these ideas all come from Rousseau. They, they were uh, mainstreamed by him and they're still taking on their order of today. Now, mm. As Christians, there's an obvious, those first two quotes, you're like, wait, it's obviously untrue. As Christians, we believe we're made in the image and likeness of God, which means that all mankind has equal, uh, equal rights and ability to access God. However, we're also fallen. We believe in the nature of the original sin, which means that all men are also accessible to the rebellion against God that occurred inside of Eden. So we have a dual nature, one that is for God and one that is against God. Mm -hmm. And the Christian is the one who has chosen to receive forgiveness for their fallenness and to start participating with the activity of the new Adam, namely Jesus. I'm participating with the image of God, not the fallen image of man. That was the ideal. But that means that all people groups across the world are fallen. There is no unique evil that exists inside of European society, just like there is no unique evil that exists inside of native society. Right, we uh, if you study your ancestors enough, you realize we all participated in some pretty gnarly stuff, right? <laughs> stuff you just don't want to know about, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but we all participated in some really, really ugly stuff, 
And it is actually a testament to the gospel going through Europe as to why the society of Europe had the uh, has the current morals that it has today. Why we look back on it and are repulsed exactly. because that's <laughs> normal. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. But the he he by the way, he praises the Caribbean islanders in his book. And our word cannibal comes from Caribbean, right? Yep. So uh, these are the kind of people that he's that he's holding up as the ideal. Number one, because he didn't know much about him. He stayed in Europe his entire life. But number two is because he just had this weird philosophy that he never really tested out, but just people accessed, which is really weird. Um, but let's get to this quote. So this is where I, I said that he believed in evolution. So just so you know, I'm not making it up and I'm not uh, inventing something. This is from his book, A Discourse Upon the Origin and the Foundation of the Inequality Among Man. That's a mouthful. However important it may be in order to form a proper judgment of the natural state of man, to consider him from his origins and to examine him, as it were, in the first embryo of the species, I shall not attempt to trace his organization through its successive approaches to perfection. I shall not stop to examine in the animal system what he might have been in the beginning. Notice what he's saying. I'm not going to examine what animals we were. I'm only going to look at us in our current state. That is pretty clearly evolutionary biology right there. Uh, to become at last what he actually is. I shall not inquire whether, as Aristotle thinks, his neglected nails were no better at first than crooked talons, whether his whole body was not bear-like, covered with rough hair, and whether walking upon all fours, his eyes directed to the earth and confined to a horizon of a few paces extent, did not at one point out of the nature and limits of his ideas, I could only form vague and almost imaginary conjectures of this subject. Now, this is something that you're not going to learn in school, but it's true. Europe already believed in evolution before Darwin. Yeah, Darwin popularized one of many forms of macro evolution. Yep. And the idea that man is an evolved ape. Notice what he's saying, that we used to be bear-like, covered in hair, and on all fours, right? This, this idea that man is descended from an ape comes already prepackaged in Rousseauian thought, and it actually precedes him a little bit as well. Interestingly, I would encourage you guys, if you haven't read it or you could listen to it on YouTube, it's called The Death of a Great Myth by C.S. Lewis. It's like a 15-minute talk that he gives, uh, or like I said, you could read it, an essay. In it, he says one of the things that put him off to macroevolution was this truth, that evolution was a theory that was popularized before the scientific method was even a thing, even a widespread thing, and before Darwin had, quote unquote, proved it on the Galapagos Islands. What he's saying is that the imagination of man putting off God was already thirsty for a knowledge of our origin. And you see it in guys like Rousseau already. They were just waiting for a guy like Darwin to say, oh, you, I know you just think that this is right, but it is right. Here's scientific proof that confirms it's right. So when guys like Richard Dawkins says that Darwin made it possible for us to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, that's what he's talking about, right? He's saying, well, he doesn't, by the way, I, I don't think that Dawkins is sophisticated enough to, to know this, but... In his mind, he's just saying that people were atheists before Darwin, but Darwin just gave a theory commensurate with their lack of faith. Rousseau is showing that people already didn't have this faith, which means that its atheism did not come out of science. Atheism came out of a faith that denied the existence of God, 
And then evolution became a supplementary theory that attached to it, right? So it's a very different history than, like I said, we are taught in the school system. But Rousseau shows us that. And again, his philosophy stems from evolutionary biology. Since we are just a higher animal, well, you don't teach a monkey to be a monkey. You don't teach an ape to be an ape. You don't teach a dog to be a dog. Why would you teach a man to be a man? Mm. We are inherently good in ourselves, and society has corrupted us and brought us away from our innate goodness. Mm. And so one of the things we need to do is undermine society, upheaval it. Uh, he was a very revolutionary thinker, and that's why his thoughts led to one of the bloodiest revolutions in history. It was, it was the bloodiest revolution until the 1900s, but you know, uh, then, then he got outdone in Europe. But his ideas are revolutionary because he didn't believe that the institutions around us were good. He thought that they were corrupt in their influence and that we should overthrow them. So there's a lot more that I could say about Rousseau. We'll get to him. I'll get more quotes later. I'm going to talk about how this philosophy affected the way he saw politics, because his view of politics is very much alive in our politics today, and how it affected his ideas of education. We'll talk about that more. And as well as how his thoughts of the inner man uh, are reflected today, because mm. he wrote a book called Confessions which really affected the way that Europeans thought about their inner world. Uh, prior to him, most people thought, I have an inner world, but the outer world is more significant because it's real and my inner world has to conform to that. Rousseau is like, no, your inner world is more real than reality mm. and you need to conform reality to your inner world. Wow. So uh, yeah, very dangerous guy, very dangerous mind. Do you guys have any last thoughts on Rousseau before we move to the questions? Well, just for the edification of those who are treating this like a Bible question and answer program, understand this is worth talking about. That when we understand we're speaking to people who take this man's assumptions about mankind as gospel, we offer a different good news. The good news to the world, to the Rousseauian, is the idea that the solution is the belief that there is no problem, mm. or at least there wasn't a right. problem until people who believe there's a problem come in, and this could be basically be assumed to borderline Buddhism, the idea that if you just stop caring about the problem, that's the solution. If you are talking to someone who has that revulsion of the idea, you're calling me a sinner, you're calling what I do is wrong, right. that's coming from these assumptions. And if you take the time to at least meet them on their terms, the two, I guess, landmines you can avoid to actually productive conversation isn't to focus on the idea of here's the problem and it's you, it's here's the solution and it's him. Mm. Make the conversation about Jesus and they won't have these pre-programmed reactions and basically shields up for anyone who wants to tell them something that solves a problem they've trained themselves into thinking doesn't exist. Yeah, because that's perhaps the first step of salvation that you have to accept that you I need to be sinner. saved yeah you need yeah. to be saved otherwise i don't need to be and that's what you're saying it's complete that, that was his idea you know yeah. you need to be saved right it's almost like we're in a in a zoo you know we're kind of captive <laughs> and the, yeah. we should be you know set free from that into our natural habitat you know but yeah but yeah our yeah, thoughts and everything well very interesting well thank you for sharing those we've got questions coming in lots of them thank you for them uh question from adrian came in through our uh, email address, uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com, which you're welcome to use at any time. Um, he quotes Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And Adrian's question is, 
can you please explain when the day of Christ Jesus is? And please say it's tomorrow. That would be great. <laughs> well, it depends on what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You, know? <laughs> uh, you want to answer that one, Sean? No. <laughs> Save up for some interesting ones, but just in brief, obviously Peter's alluding to either the day that the Lord comes for us or we go to him, physical death or the rapture. But uh, the idea of final judgment that we, when we see him, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. That's First John chapter 3. Uh, the idea that the completion of Jesus Christ's work, and this is again Romans 8 and plenty of areas throughout the Gospels, the idea of him conforming, literally transforming you at the foundations into the image, the character of his son. So the idea of God not only knowing what he got himself into when he saved you, but seeing that process through to the end, Mm. the end goal is for you to perfectly reflect God in your character like Adam and Eve once did. And that's a work, of course, that we believe the Holy Spirit is doing from the inside out, not from the outside in through more restrictions and stuff. Because if outside, you know, stimuli could fix us, we wouldn't need a law. But if, on the other hand... If we're rebels by nature, no law is going to help us. That's why God starts from here, and where he's leading us is to him. Yeah, and I'll just say that, you know, the passage there is one of the most encouraging and hopeful passages in the entirety of Scripture. So the bummer about it, as you alluded to, Dave, is that the day of Christ Jesus is the day that we see him face to face. Mm-hmm. And that can be very discouraging to some people. We're like, you know, why can't it be today? Why can't I just be perfect? I'm tired of sinning. I'm tired of falling short. I, I want to be with Christ right now. And, and we will be. But the hope that is present within the passage is that, number one, God, if God began the good work in you, which means that you have a saving relationship with him, you believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that was a work of God. That was a work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of the work of God. If he began it in you, he will be faithful to finish it. Uh, I counsel a lot of people that are just very discouraged, yeah. and they're just like, gosh, man, I just keep falling short. I keep blowing it. Am I even saved? Does God even care? Right. And this passage is such a hope. It's such a stronghold for so many people that, that recognize he, if he began that good work in me, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not about necessarily my faithfulness to God. It's God's perfect faithfulness to me that's right. going to bring me home. And it also helps us understand kind of who the real us is, right? So we are, of all of us, of a divided mind. I have desires to honor God, and I have desires to dishonor God and rebel against his law. Uh, in fact, those desires to dishonor him are so strong, as Paul puts in Romans 7, that when I learn that something is wrong, I want to do it even more, mm. right? That's how wicked I am. And as you begin to act on certain, especially evil temptations within your heart, it's very easy for you to think, like, what's the real me? Is the real me the one that wants to honor God, or is the real me the one that wants to honor the flesh? And, and maybe I'm just fooling myself with all this Christianity stuff, mm-hmm. and really I'm just the same fallen person I've always been with a little bit of a, you know spiritual frosting on the top, mm-hmm. and I should just kind of go back to what I was doing. This passage says, and again, one of the most hopeful tones we see in the Bible, that no, the real you is the one that will be brought to completion within Christ. Yeah. That's the real you. Mm. You can act in consonance with the old man, but it doesn't make you the old man. It doesn't make you your old nature. It just means that the old nature is still alive, and it will be alive until you see Christ face to face. But we choose, and like I said, we act upon the part that we want to participate with. Do I want to participate with God or the flesh? That's an act of the will. However, the present tense of sin and temptation 
are an ever-present struggle for the Christian. Mm. And this one gives us a lot of hope to say, I want to act on the part of me that desires to honor God because that's the real me. That's the me that's going to be alive forever. This fallen me that wants to do these evil things, that me is dying. And eventually it will actually die. Mm. It will actually be gone. And all that will remain is the part of me that wants to honor God. Yeah. So it's a beautiful, beautiful hope. Yeah, absolutely is. Well, Adrian, hope that helps you out. Thank you for that question. A great question. A uh, question from Rene. Uh, what is Calvinism and can you explain it in simple terms? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> basically a school of thought that would emphasize the sovereignty of God, even at the expense of the free will of man. Now, people who are Calvinist obviously can be just as moderate or extreme as anyone else would be in a position, but uh, Calvinism is based on the, not of course, first thinker in these terms, but the primary one associated with the teachings, John Calvin, who was a contemporary somewhat of Martin Luther and the other reformers during that time in church history, where people were trying to get back to the Bible and avoiding traditions, but coming up with some of their own at the same time. Uh, Calvinism generally follows the acronym called TULIP. Uh, it's an outline of basically what they would emphasize about the sovereignty of God. Uh, the T stands for total depravity. They would base this around ideas like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, utterly helpless and unable to redeem ourselves. Uh, unconditional election is what the U stands for. They would base this largely on uh, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6 and John 15, 16. The idea is that God chose us, not on any basis, but his goodness and grace. Again, we wouldn't disagree with that. Um, limited atonement is what the L stands for. They would base this largely around 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10, uh, kind of emphasizing part of the passage over others where we're starting to squint a little bit, but nonetheless not uh, inherently an unbiblical view. The idea that those who benefit from God's redeeming grace are those who receive it, his idea is basically to take those terms and twist them around, that the only ones who will receive it are the ones that uh, God predetermined, which is then where we get into the I, irresistible grace, which is largely based on a, a section of Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, who has resisted as well who has become a God's counselor, those kinds of ideas, that uh, if God's going to do something, you can't fight it, you can't resist it, which is taken by most to be, if God wants you to get saved, you're going to get saved. And by others, not all Calvinists, but others, if God doesn't want you to get saved, there's nothing that can be done. Not because of necessarily condemnation on his part, but the total depravity of man. God will leave you in your fallenness. And then, of course, the P stands for the perseverance of the saints, John uh, 6.37 is usually the proof text for that, that like we talked about in Philippians, that uh, we have eternal security in the sovereignty of God, that he elected us, and he's going to see us home. But the, uh, of course, trepidation, if that's the right word, uh, we have towards some of these views isn't necessarily in what they affirm, but in what they deny. Mm. Uh, if you're talking to a Calvinist and you focus just on the positive statements, you believe that God is sovereign, you can agree with them 100% biblically, but then they say, and we deny that man is free. Well, there's the issue. There are passages in Scripture that also emphasize that we have a will and that those decisions made by our will do in fact matter. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, uh, 15 through 19 is a good one, most prominently quoted in, in 
anti-Calvinistic circles, the idea that uh, we are to choose this day whom we will serve. God has set before us life and death, blessing and cursing. We are to choose life that we may live. Other passages like Isaiah 55 and verse 6, um, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Matthew 23, 37, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and basically the book of Philemon, but all of these things being examples in Scripture of us. Yeah, yeah. you have a choice. There is a wrong choice, but God will give you the liberty to do it, and he will judge you accordingly. And of course, we can go into any sorts of criticisms, but let's uh, just keep this in simple terms. When people hold a Calvinistic position, it's usually coming from the mindset that needs a lot of stability and security and has largely a very high view of God, which are all great things. Um, when it comes to those who are in the other than Calvinist position, usually called Arminians, but again, it's not necessarily an either or, uh, they would emphasize the fact that God has given man free will and that they take the decisions they make in this life very seriously, which again, is also not a bad thing. So the idea behind both is a view of God and what he's given to us, not just of himself, but also of us and the opportunity to reflect him in this life. Uh, when you talk to Calvinists, obviously they're going to be the best people to talk to when you need prayer during times of trials, when you need reminders that God's still on the throne, but also in noting areas of sin and temptation, they can be the least helpful because that's when they'll usually distance themselves from you and say, well, you know, God's in control, and if you're doing these things, he's just handed you over to your depravity. Again, not always, but just be aware of these gaps in the philosophy. So, yeah, uh, let us know if that helps you out, Renee. And again, I'll hand anything extra over to Peter in a second. But just understand those fundamentals, the acronym TULIP. We can go through that again if you'd like, or I can post it in the comments. That is largely their framework for how they approach the Scripture. They do affirm positive things we would 100% agree with. Mm. But through the philosophical inferences of what they would then deny that's where they get beyond scripture and why we wouldn't call ourselves Calvinists, yet more often than people might think would agree with them. <laughs> so let us know if that helps. Anything more? Yeah. No, it's good. All right. Yeah. I got it perfect then, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> perfect is a strong word, but it's very good. <laughs> it was complete. <laughs> it was complete, yes. You are complete. Yeah, thank you, Renee, for that question. It's a great question. Um, I mean, what what would you call us then if we're, you know, we're not Calvinists, we're not Armenian, but is there a word for... When both come together, there's not a word for it. Do you want it? me to be sarcastic? Or <laughs> Christian. Be... <laughs> Christian, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks again, Renee, for that question. Uh, a question from Tristan. Uh, he uh, references Jeremiah 32, 40, 40. I don't know why I said it with an American accent. Um, <laughs> apparently, it's a follow-up from yesterday. I, I wasn't here yesterday, so I don't know what it's following up from. But uh, he says, Does, Jer did Jeremiah prophesy what would happen Today, Jeremiah thirty-two forty says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Hmm. So I think the question is, is, is it, did Jeremiah prophesy what would happen, would be happening today? I think if I interpret that question, right? Um, I, actually, none of us were here yesterday, so <laughs> I'm going to take a stab at what I think the question is. Okay. Uh, I, if, if what you're saying is, is this a prophecy that is being fulfilled today in the nation of Israel? I would say that uh, yes. So in the context of the story, uh, Jeremiah is essentially, he's prophesying that the nation of Israel is going to be given over to Babylon. And he's 
a very emotional guy. <laughs> Jeremiah is definitely the most emotional of all prophets. He is called the weeping prophet. And so every now and then God gives him a little bit of a boost, you know, and this is one of the passages where God's giving him a bit of a boost. So even though he promised Jeremiah that what was about to befall Israel would not be the end, he sometimes gives him an acted out sermon to show him, I am going to be faithful. Mm-hmm. And Jeremiah 32 is one of those times where God tells Jeremiah to go buy a field. Now, that seems like a very dumb thing to do in a nation that's about to fall, right? So if you knew that Hurricane Katrina was coming and it was going to wipe out all the real estate inside of New Orleans, you probably wouldn't buy a two-bedroom at, you know, at, at ground level that week. You would, you, would, you would wait because obviously you know that it's going to be useless once the flood comes. Now, Jeremiah is looking at this and he's saying, why would God want me to buy a field in a nation that's about to fall to the enemy? This is a useless transaction. I'd be better off using the money to buy food or, you know, invest in gold. I don't know, bury it somewhere or something like that. But what God is showing Jeremiah is I'm going to be faithful. Like, I want you to buy this field, not because you're going to see it again. Jeremiah never saw the land again once he got deported, but not because you're going to see the land again, but because I will be faithful, right? Your, your family, your kin, they will come back and they will dwell in the land. Now, you could say that this particular passage was immediately fulfilled in the return of the Israelites after 70 years of captivity, which we have recorded for us in the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the immediate fulfillment of this. But you could also say that there is a far of fulfillment, because you could see in the passage that you quoted, that it's not just going to be a physical return, but a spiritual return to God. Now, while the nation of Israel did physically return after 70 years of captivity, they never really fully spiritually return to God. You have certain what we would call revivals happen in that time period, but you never have a full turning to God that happens in the nation of Israel between that time. And we could tell that because when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews as a whole rejected him as their Messiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were obviously all the early apostles were Jewish. They received the promise, but the nation as a whole did reject him as their Messiah and uh, participate with the Romans in his crucifixion. So what we're seeing today is another physical return of Israel, but it will culminate. Paul, the Apostle Paul, took this still literally. He believed that there would be a literal spiritual return of Israel to God, and he prophesied that it would happen. He didn't prophesy, but he just he quoted he the prophecy. Prophecies. He repeated the prophecies and said, I believe this will happen because, you know, he's a, he's a good God-fearing man. And the, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yeah. <laughs> reiterating the point. That's right. So... As Christians, we could still look at this and and say the nation of Israel, they're back in the land, but there will be a spiritual return to God. It hasn't Mm -hmm. happened yet, right? If if you have any Jewish friends, you know that the majority of Jews aren't even Orthodox Jews, let alone Christians, right? So majority of them have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but even uh, not that many of them even accept their traditional faith. They're mainly Mm -hmm. just cultural Jews with an atheistic secular bent. Uh, which is really disheartening. But what God is promising is that's not going to be the case through the end of time, that they will return to him and they will come to know him and they will, as Zechariah prophesies, look upon Jesus, the one whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. So they will recognize who their Messiah is and they will convert to him. And that's honestly, when you read the book of Revelation from that lens, it makes a lot of sense, right? So the, the the references and everything makes a lot of sense within Revelation. If you read it through that lens, that this is that God is utilizing the tribulation period to bring his people back to him in massive numbers. 
there's more we can say about that, but anything you'd like to add to that or clarify? Just noting where we're at as far as the new covenant and what Jeremiah was prophesying. You're making a distinction. We're talking more of uh, end time stuff here, but what we're essentially doing, a la Romans 11, is a foreshadowing of what God will do in the hearts of the Jewish people, only we're Gentiles. And that's the point that he makes. If our redemption blesses the world in this way, how much more Israel's, if Israel's rejection right. blesses the entire world, how much more their fullness? That's right. the point. Right. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Tristan, for that question. If, um, if that didn't quite answer your question, um, you're welcome to comment or you join us through our website or maybe the, the app. Um, so I'll be watching that if you want to kind of clarify the question, but hopefully that helps you out. And uh, thank you for that question. A question from Janet. Um, is it true? In fact, there was a, this may have been the follow-up from yesterday that we yeah. talked about. It was, okay, so Janet asks, is it true that God is not male or female, but spirit, mm -hmm. or is God male? Um, according to Justin Peters, not sure who those, but yeah, or is a pastor who makes the point of emphasis, and she quoted him yesterday. Okay. If God was female, he would have told us he calls himself male, so we have to deal with it. Uh, basically, just this pushback towards the idea of more of the liberal Pentecostal thing of saying that God's no more me female than he is male. Um, yeah, just three things to clarify here. When it comes to God referring to himself as father and son, these are relational terms, not physical descriptors. So in follow-up questions you gave, like, what does God look like? Like we stated, God is spirit, John chapter 4 says. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Since male and female are concepts he invented, not that he idealized, but he invented, he doesn't have to be made of the stuff that he produced. That's just the first off. So if we then take a step back and go, so in what way, why does he emphasize, why does he reveal to us as father and not as mother or not as daughter or not as you see it like? Well, first of all, let's just go off what information we have. In the Gospels, we're told that when God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, as full and as much as God by nature as the Father and the Spirit, but the only one who adopted human nature, undeniably, <laughs> he came to this world as a biological male. Now, does that reflect his nature in some ethereal cosmic sense? Not necessarily. We'd have to read a lot into the text to come up with some broader significance than just the fact he became a man because he said he'd come as a man. But that then being said, if we say, oh, well, so then God the Father, couldn't that be a woman? No, because we're using biological terms read into, and here's the key that a lot of people are missing here, relationship titles. Because when people think of the Trinity, cult groups have described it as a divine family. Uh, Well-intended but very poor theologians have said, oh, well, it's like this structure meant to uh, project this idealized picture of humanity, and that's what the image of God is supposed to be like. No. When it comes down to what is at work within the Godhead, we're talking about an eternal and a perfect relationship, a father and a son noted primarily. Now, when we're asking the question, so is the spirit like the third wheel? Why doesn't he have a relational term? Once again, we're getting off topic. Why does God call himself Father? Because to Israel, in Isaiah 66, 
He's the one who introduced them to this world. And noting those terms again, he's the one who stewards them, ensures their well-being, their protection. As they understood a father to be, he fulfills that role. It would be just as nonsensical to say, okay, well, Psalm 23 says God's a shepherd, so where's his crook, right? Well, it's a relational term as a shepherd to a sheep, a father to a son. You get the idea. When the son, God the son, is described as well, because God presents himself as a father in our relationship with him, a member of the Trinity that submits to his authority would naturally fit into that role because who, in the peak of terms of relationships, submits to the Father but relates to them more closely than the other, the Son. These are the pictures that are being described here. So just to deal with the underlying assumption that misses the point, when we're describing God as Father and Son, we're not describing what they are, we're describing how they are to us how we relate to them and how they relate to each other. Relationship terms aren't physical terms. God isn't physic, if that's uh, as humorous a term and play on words as possible. He's not a thing that you observe with eyes. The Son has revealed himself in a visible and a physical way. We beheld his glory, John 1.14 says, as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But notice even there, begotten of the Father. These are terms that describe relationship, not chromosomes. Yeah, so when you look at the Bible, um, you have to understand, just as Sean is saying, these are all relational terms to help us understand God. The main thrust of the Bible is the Bible is a, a romance novel, actually. So the Bible commensurates with God creating the world and creating man, and then he inaugurates mankind through a marriage ceremony. And then throughout this theme of God relating to man as a husband relates to his wife is throughout the Bible. Mm. Uh, it is all through the Old Testament and Exodus. There's a covering that goes over Mount Sinai as God enters into a covenant with them. There's a reason why Jews to this day get married under a, co a covering, namely a hopa. It's to commemorate, uh, commemorate that. Uh, there's a reason why the Song of Solomon, which is about a man falling in love with a woman, is called the Holy of Holies by most rabbis because they recognize this is representative of God's perfect love for his people. It's the reason why Jesus called himself the bridegroom. It's the reason why Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about husbands and wives as being a symbol of Christ in the church, and why in Revelation 19 the Bible closes with a wedding ceremony. So the Bible opens and closes with a wedding ceremony, and that's all intentional. God relates to his people in the same way that a man relates to his wife. So what that means is that the masculine, right, when God creates the feminine and the masculine, the masculine represents a particular quality that is within God in the way that he relates to his people. So if you're going to say, well, why is God always represented as a man? Well, why, is the, why are the people of God always represented as a woman, right? Mm, right? Why is the church in Israel always represented as a woman? Because that's how the picture works. Mm -hmm. God, by calling the church a woman, a female, He's not saying that only women are going to make it into the, in the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's very interesting to me that people who really wrestle with God only being portrayed as the masculine, it's like, well, why aren't you very happy that the church is always portrayed as being the feminine? Uh, wouldn't that show you that there might, be, I mean, there might even intimate that there's a superiority to women within the body because of this? It, it doesn't, but, you know, like someone could take, take that away because the church is always portrayed as a woman. The reason is because it's symbolic. God doesn't have a gender. 
in the way that we understand gender because gender always connotes the way that you procreate. That's why you don't look at a tree and say, that's a female tree. Uh, that's a that's a male cloud over there. You know, like you don't say that because they don't procreate. Gender only works in procreation. God doesn't procreate. He creates, but he doesn't procreate. And uh, another interesting thing is that God has feminine titles attached to him throughout the Bible as well. So the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter one, it says that he broods over the earth. The Holy Spirit hovers over the earth. The word there is literally to brood. It is the word that is used to describe a mother hen mm. sitting on her young, waiting for them to hatch. The Holy Spirit is often uh, utilizes various feminine pronouns to describe him. Uh, and then also God has a title called El Shaddai, which most people have heard. The literal translation, it's usually yeah, translated. Not kidding. Yeah. The, the literal translation is the many-breasted one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so most your Bibles will not say that. No, it will <laughs> say the almighty God. But literally, that's what it means. Mm. And it's because I'm going to write it in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm crossing that yeah. out. <laughs> you people, you know, like, but that is a, it's clearly a feminine title given to God, denoting his nurture towards his people. Mm. So uh, you, you have, it, it's not as though God only has masculine qualities attached to him. He does have feminine qualities attached to him because it says in Genesis 1:27, in the image of God, he created them, right. male and, and female, he created them. So both the man and the woman portray a particular quality of God in his nature. Mm. But when God is relating to his people, he has to take on one of those genders, right? right? He has to give himself one of the genders, and he chooses to give himself the gender of male because male, the masculine, is the gender that God created to lead, to be the head, and to pursue, right? Men pursue women. And so God pursues his people, and therefore he is portrayed as the masculine mm. within that relationship. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple more, but I, I think that's sufficient for that's, what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, it's very good. Well, Janet, thank you for your question. I hope that helps you out. It's a great, great discussion for sure. Thanks for that, guys. Uh, let's see, question from Mac D. How would you explain Moses and the bronze snake? Well, um, <laughs> as far as the event in of itself, it was obviously a solution to the judgment of God, one of many Israel had in the book of Numbers. But as far as its ultimate purpose and significance, apart from that incident with Hezekiah, uh, is obviously a passage you may all be familiar with, John 3.16. That's literally a follow-up to a point Jesus was making about the bronze serpent. Uh, quick, quick, quick recap, because we only have a few minutes. But in the book of Numbers, there was one of many instances where Israel decided to rebel against Moses, said, you've brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. We're going back to Egypt. They stepped like two paces outside of the cloud that God was covering Israel with in order to protect them from the heat and the cold of the desert to keep them safe from you know everything else that was going on and to provide for them the manna as they were in the presence of God in this cloud. They stepped beyond it and stepped into a snake pit, <laughs> basically what we would call in modern terms fire adders, these little snoots, noodles that hide in the desert and stuff, and they were getting bit. Some people say, oh, they were demons, or oh, they were a supernatural flaming serpent. Eh, I wouldn't go to the supernatural unless you have to. That's just my opinion. But they get bit by these snakes and people start dying. Everyone can agree on that. Then Moses is commanded. Notice, Moses doesn't pull an Aaron and constructs an idol. Moses is commanded, take the bronze serpent, that idea of what's bringing all this pain on them, put it on a pole and make it presentable to everyone in Israel. And whoever looks on it, they won't die from the poison. That's not natural. 
but understanding that the simple acknowledgement of a bronze effigy of a serpent that just reminds you of what got you into this situation. That's not a you know an- ancient insight into anti-venoms. No, this was a supernatural intervention to God. You trust my provision for you. It's going to deliver you from the consequences, ultimate consequences, not the pain necessarily, but the ultimate consequences of your sin. So Israel's lives are preserved to a point through this judgment, and of course it eventually becomes an effigy associated in the world uh, with healing, uh, became an idol in Israel, and the Greeks and the Persians borrowed from it as well. The Staff of Hermes, if you see that serpent on a lot of hospitals, you date the, the uh, Torah, the law, and the accounts of this. I think the Jews did it first. That's, again, just an opinion. We can have a, another conversation when we have more time. But Jesus takes this theme of looking to God's provision on something that's been lifted up on a pole and says, just as the serpent in the wilderness was raised up, so the Son of Man must be listed up, so that anyone who believes in him, notice the same terms, will have everlasting life. Then John 3.16 comes in. Um, As far as the significance, I think that's the best way to put it, because we have chapter and verse directly tying it into Jesus. I don't have to stretch anything. But the idea is to emphasize, provide a foreshadowing of that, of the fact that God would make a provision, 2 Corinthians 5.21 style, of he who knew no sin becoming sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's no more familiar image to represent our fallen state before God than the serpent, the you know Garden of Eden, Allah style. Yet Jesus becoming the embodiment of it all as an object of God's wrath, and by simply acknowledging that was his provision, will be healed of the ultimate consequences of our sin too. Very good. Thank you, Sean. Well, uh, MacD, thank you for that question. Uh, Yari and Dwayne and Craig, sorry we didn't get to your question, and Yari especially. Looks like you've been trying to get that question in for a few days, so Lord willing, I will get to that first tomorrow. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. We'll see you back. We have a special guest tomorrow. Join us tomorrow for that. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.